0: The following is part of the teaching ministry of Harvest Bible Chapel in Barrie, Ontario. We believe firmly in proclaiming the Word of God without apology. For more information about our church, visit our website at harvestberry.ca or email us at info at We trust that this message will challenge and transform you. A great day to be together. Amen. And uh, we're going to start a brand new series here this morning. Uh, we're going to be in the book of Hosea. We're starting this uh, series called Everyday Heroes. So let's get a start on it. Um, how about this phrase? Forget beauty. You know that expression, beauty's in the eye of the beholder. Forget beauty. Let's talk about heroism. Because heroism is really in the eye of the beholder. Heroism is in the eye of the beholder. Different people actually look for different things. In those that they would count as heroes, let me um, let me convince you of this. Uh, just last week, as happens, I think every year for the last bunch of years, uh, the uh, top canadian how is this—the top Canadian heroes, top Canadian heroes, published by—I don't even care who, because um, I, I I struggle with the list. As maybe you do too. Let's go through these. Uh, Number one, Pierre Trudeau. Okay, try, try, try to restrain yourselves, all right? Try to restrain yourselves just a little bit, Canada. Come on. Uh, Pierre Trudeau, number two, Terry Fox. Okay, number... Okay, you're clearly not going to listen to me and you are going to react. Number three, Tommy Douglas. Most of you don't even know who he is. That's right. He's from Saskatchewan or something <clears throat> now, right? Terry, wasn't he a Saskatchewan boy like you? Yeah. Number four. I think he was a Baptist preacher. Tommy Douglas, wasn't he? Can somebody confirm that for me? I think he was, um, uh, number four, Lester B Pearson won the Nobel peace prize. You remember that, right? Well, some of you knew that number five, Chris Hadfield played his guitar in space. Number six, David Suzuki, <laughs> uh, this is more fun than I imagined, really. Uh, number seven, Jack Layton, never governed anything. Number eight, Sir John A. MacDonald, yeah. Thing about Sir John A., he's, he was was—he's probably drunk when Canada became a nation. thats That's what I understand about Sir John A., he was probably tanked. Number nine, It was probably the long week. It was a long weekend. Of course he was. Of course he was. Roger, should I just close in prayer right now? <laughs> Number nine, Wayne Gretzky. Tip of the hat to Canada and our... And number 10, Romeo Dallaire, if you know that story. Amen. All right. Um, I, I look at that list and maybe one or maybe two of them would actually be on my list of heroes. Like as I define heroism, because heroism is in the eye of the beholder for Christ followers as we kind of begin this series. I mean, I would really hope that for those of us who are in pursuit of Jesus Christ... That our greatest heroes, the people that we're looking up to the most, would be people that we would see, not just in the scriptures, but throughout history. We would have biblical history uh, heroes. We would have heroic uh, historical people that we look to. And maybe even some contemporaries, some people even in our own lives, who we would just look at and seeing the manner in which they've lived their life and say, you know what, that's heroic. That's something that I really want to aspire to. I would hope that we would be looking at people who loved God and lived out their faith in a passionate way as the people that we would count as heroes. And I really find that most of the people on that top Canadians list, they may, they may be nice people, they may be passionate about the thing that they're passionate about, but I find that most of them don't make the cut for me because my values are so different. I can look at a man like, for example, you sneered at david suzuki and there's so much that i would disagree with him about he's a passionate guy but my values just don't line up to his values and and so i don't look at david suzuki as being a hero your heroes will match your values your heroes will deliver on what you think is important and so we're going to start this eight-part series begins today um, examining some what I'm going to call lesser lights in the, uh, in the scriptures, uh, in the Old Testament. Some lesser light biblical heroes, far, far from being larger than life. They're really just everyday heroes, as our title suggests. We're going to look at Hosea today, uh, Hannah, Deborah, Rahab, uh, Jonathan, Caleb, Nathan, and Josiah over the next couple of months you know what the thing is that they're they're people just like you people just like me they're very much ordinary people who just opened themselves up made themselves available for god to work in their life and ultimately in this series please hear this right at the outset the hero of every one of these series is fill in the blank it's, it's jesus christ the hero of every one of these stories is the Lord of glory, the God who created all of these people, the God who created the circumstance, the God whose power was manifest in the way that they lived their lives. It's, it's God at work in them. They were just simple, ordinary people who opened up their lives to God and said, oh, I'm available, work through me. And in that regard, as we work through this series, we don't need to see people who are so up there and so lofty and accomplish such great things that we couldn't also aspire to have God work in us in the same way. And we're going to see that week by week as we look at their stories, we can all be just as heroic in the way we live out our faith day by day. Mike's already prayed for us. And so let's just get right into message one. That's the intro kind of to our whole series. And um, message number one really helps us understand this, that true heroes make sacrifices. And the first message is about a man named Hosea, who was required by God to make some significant sacrifices in his life. And that's, that's really the push on this first uh, message. It's, it's sacrifice, Will we live sacrificial lives as the followers of Jesus Christ? I love this um, man named C.T. Studd. How would you like to be a man who had a name Studd? Wouldn't you just walk a little taller if that was your name? He said this. He was a missionary to China in the late 1800s, early 1900s. He He said this. If Jesus Christ be God... Is Jesus Christ God? He is. If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, did he die for you? Yes, yes he did. Are you ready to agree to this next part? Uh, then no sacrifice can be too great for us to make for him. No sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. Now, I, I think it uh at a cognitive level, at an understanding level, and even at an acknowledgement level, I'm willing to say it's true. I understand it to be true as a Christ follower. I I acknowledge freely that it's true. But could we also be be quick to say, but it's really hard to live sacrificially? Could, Could we say that too? Would we be quick to say that? Because... I think if we're being honest here today about the challenge that it is to live the Christian life, then then we would say, yes, sacrifice does not come easily to any of us, though we understand this to be true. And what we're going to see in in Hosea is, is God at work in you when you present your body as a living sacrifice. God at work in you when you present your body as a living sacrifice. Of course, that last part borrowed from Romans 12, 1, which we'll look at in a little bit. So, so what's Hosea's deal? What's the story here? Some of you may not even know very much about him. We know actually very little about Hosea. Uh, not every reference, in fact, to the name Hosea is even the same guy in the Old Testament. There were multiple men named Hosea. Uh, the one that we're looking at, we really only know a little bit about him from his actual book. What we know is found in the first part. Of Hosea 1 through 3. He was a preacher or a prophet. The difference between Hosea in the Old Testament, there would have been, they would have used this name prophet, this designation of prophet, um, it essentially meant preacher for most men who would have had this title. And uh, they would have been proclaimers of truth. Uh, the uh forth telling of things that were already revealed but some of the prophets were given kind of a special status in that they would receive direct messages from god and those direct messages uh, often were foretelling of the future uh, judgment is coming god's going to redeem uh, this is what's going to happen you need to get ready for that and Uh, Prepare your hearts, prepare your lives for that. And that was what Hosea was called to. He was a preacher prophet, but he was given a direct word from the Lord for the people that talked about uh, future things that they could not have known anything about. Uh, He was a prophet to the nation of Israel. If you know anything about the history, you'll recall that um, after Solomon's time, uh, the kingdom split, the kingdom of Israel split into two. uh, The two Southern tribes uh, remained faithful to the Lord. Jerusalem was their capital. Uh, they, uh, they, um, they just stayed faithful. Uh, they were called Judah. And the northern tribes retained the name Israel. Uh, Ten tribes, uh, they were unfaithful to the Lord in every way. Judah went through this thing with good kings and bad kings. Some were on track with the Lord, some were not. Uh, uh, Israel, the northern kingdom, at least was consistent in that every king was bad and led them towards greater and greater depths of sin. And so into that, Hosea is called to preach to this northern kingdom, this unresponsive, rebellious, sinful people. He's called to be a preacher to that kingdom. They were particularly given to idolatry. And, and this, is, this is kind of how it played out. They still believe themselves to be good Jews, They still believed in the God that was called Yahweh, who was worshipped in Jerusalem. They still believed in that God. They still acknowledged him as their God. But then they would also play around over here with other small G gods, particularly the God Baal or Baal. And they would go after these other gods in a pursuit for some kind of satisfaction in their lives. And so it was like we acknowledge that we're believers, but we also like to worship these things over here. Now that description right there, tell me 21st century Canada a little bit. We're Christians. We believe in God, but then we go after all these other things to try and satisfy us and bring us some kind of joy and fulfillment in life. That's that's definitely today. Hosea was called to preach into all of that and call them out for it. Not unlike preachers today. God called Hosea to something even a little bit more unique than just preaching. He actually wanted Hosea's life to be a parable of the severed relationship between Israel and God. He wanted Hosea's life and his marriage and his family to be a living illustration, to be a living sermon of what was going on in this relationship between God and his people. And so get this. Uh, time to go to the text. I've been talking too much. Hosea 1, 1 to 3. The word of the Lord came to Hosea, the son of Beri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah, in the day of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. Gives us our time stamp. It's about uh, the 8th century uh, before Christ. Verse 2: When the Lord spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, I hope you're okay with the word whore because you're going to hear it three times in the next verse. Go and take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Adiblam, and she conceived and bore him a son. This is an unusual request. The Lord is saying to a preacher, a man called by him to go and take a wife who, now whether she was already an immoral woman, this word whoredom or whore really can refer to a a broad range of, of immorality. It's, it's not confined to prostitution, though we might confine it to that. It's, it's far broader than that. Whether or not this woman was already engaged in an immoral lifestyle when he married her, or whether she engaged in that later on, uh, the fact remains that uh, Hosea was set up by the Lord to have a really messed up, dysfunctional, a severed relationship with his wife. And all of this is a picture. Hosea was to marry this woman. Hosea representing God in the relationship. And Gomer representing the nation of Israel, immoral, going after other lovers. And God's point in this is there. They're supposed to be in this covenant relationship, a covenant relationship by its very nature. Uh, Those of you who are married in this room, you know this. You stood in front of other people. You took vows to one another. Each of you pledged your life to the other. And there's great mutuality in that covenant relationship we call marriage. And God was married to Israel. And yet the relationship was, as we would describe, entirely one way. God being faithful, God providing, God protecting, God loving, God pouring himself out for, and nothing in return, nothing coming back from Israel. And so the covenant really, in effect, was severed. Only God being faithful to it. He marries this woman, and then we're trying to figure out Hosea's deal here. He marries this woman in obedience to the Lord. And then there are three kids who are named and they're each given prophetic names. Verse four, the Lord said to him, so she bore him a son in verse three. And the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel for in a little while, I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of. Of the house of Israel and on that day, I will break the uh, bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. and All of that just refers to something that happened in first Kings 21 Naboth's vineyard. I'm not going to go into all the story there. Uh, but um, Hosea and Gomer's first son is a message about they name him for a place because it's a message about God's vengeance coming on those who have been evil and who have sinned. And so the first child is born to, to Hosea. And the name is itself a message about what God is going to do. Now that happens with the next two kids, but something curious happens here. Verse six, she conceived again. What it doesn't say is this, that she conceived again to Hosea. And there's every indication in the text that the next two children that are born are not actually Hosea's children. And yet, by virtue of his marriage to this woman, they're now kind of part of his family. This crazy, dysfunctional family. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, call her name No Mercy. I've been to Africa. I've met women whose name is Mercy. That's a great name. No Mercy. You know, not so great. For this little kid going to school. Imagine that. What's your name? No mercy. No mercy. You don't want to play with that kid on the playground, right? No idea what's going down with that. Her name is No Mercy. This is what the Lord says. This is what's being communicated through this little girl. For I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel. Time's run out. I'm up to here with you and your sinfulness and your rebellion against me. I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them all, but I will have mercy on the house of Judah and I will save them by the Lord, their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by word or by horses or by horse. I'm going to save them because they're still faithful, but you are unfaithful and uh, time's up. Verse eight, when she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son and the Lord said, call his name, not my people for you are not my people. I'm not your God. Do you hear the finality in that? I mean, do you feel? Do you feel the hammer drop right there? And the severing that's taking place in that moment as these children of adultery. Are named. All of this signaling God's judgment, God's message to them. Each name communicating what God needed to say to his people. He marries this woman. Things go bad in a hurry. She's unfaithful. There are children of unfaithfulness. And then check this out. Just so we can kind of complete what what Hosea's deal is. Chapter three. While the Lord said to me, go again. He's 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 gone. She's with another lover. He's he's probably got their son at home with him. She's off with another man and she's had two children. The Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and they love cakes of raisins. I think that can be translated fruitcakes. They love (laughs) fruitcakes. No, actually, I read that in a commentary. It means fruitcakes. It really does. I'm not just making this stuff up so i brought i bought her i bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and elective of barley i said to you must dwell as mine for many days you shall not play the whore or belong to another man so will i also be to you for the children of israel shall dwell many days without king or prince without sacrifice or pillar without ephod or household gods Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord, their God and David, their king, and they shall come in fear of the Lord and to his goodness in latter days. All of this, a message. Hosea has to go now and and take back his wife, who's been so unfaithful to him. That's his deal. Could we agree that that's that's a tough thing for the Lord? Ask him to ask him to do. Could We agree on that. And so what's God's purpose in it? Why in the world would this have to happen? I mean, this messed up family, the only way we can get our head around it is, is that we see it as a God-ordained sermon on judgment and grace. God's point in putting all of this on Hosea and Gomer and their kids is that he's trying to get our attention, not just Israel's, but our attention about the seriousness of sin and rebellion. In fact, if you're taking notes, I'm going to encourage you to take five things God is communicating to them through this book, through this whole scenario. Five things. The first is this. He hates sin. God hates sin. He hates your sin. He hates sin in your family. He hates sin in this world. He hates it. He considers the marriage here annulled by the unfaithfulness. He he calls it what it is in chapter 2. It's whoredom. Chapter 2, verse uh, 3 to 5, he describes this as being a shameful act. Shame is something God wants to erase in your life, but please understand that it's one of the pain markers. It's one of the things that indicates that we really have sinned in its initial stage, to bring us to the place where we realize we need the Lord, that guilt, fear, and shame are helpful tools. But after we come to Christ, we're setting those things aside. God calls their sins shameful. And it is. God's not overlooking sin. Not overlooking your sin. Whatever it might be. He's not nearly so casual about sin as we are. It's one of the concerns of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 6 is that we have so emphasized the grace of God and the forgiveness of God that we then actually become abusers of grace. And we allow sin to be perpetuated in our lives. It continues on. We we don't really ruthlessly deal with it in our lives because we, we reason. Well, God's a forgiving God. He's merciful. His grace is abundant and free. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. Why do you think the world loves that hymn so much? No doubt the most beloved hymn worldwide, whether people love Jesus Christ or not. It's because it speaks entirely of grace. I can do whatever I please. Because of that amazing grace, Paul says that's an abuse. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace might abound? What does he say next? God forbid. It's an abuse of grace. God hates sin. He hates your sin. We get to a good place. Listen, when we hate it as much as he does. Secondly, he allows consequences of sin. Some of us in this room know about that. Chapter two, verses six and seven. Let's just look that there's gonna be a lot of kind of moving around the book here. He says this in chapter two, verse six. Therefore, I will hedge her way uh, with thorns and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. She shall overtake them. She shall seek them, but not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband for it was better for me than now. There's consequences. There's this dissatisfaction. There's this longing that can't be fulfilled. When you pursue an addiction to an illogical end, when some pursuit, excuse me, that might not be a bad pursuit in the beginning, then becomes the the driving force behind everything that you do, and then you find, be it alcoholism or watching pornography or some other addiction in your life, maybe it's food for you and you eat. And you're satisfied in the moment and then you're not and you keep pursuing it and there's never satisfaction. See, that's that's what that's God doing that. That's what we see here. God's put a hedge of thorns around you so that you're never going to find joy or satisfaction in the thing you're doing. And the horrible consequence of the pursuit, the ongoing pursuit of willful sin is that it will never satisfy your hunger. That's her. She's going after this lover thinking she's going to find something that she never finds. God hates sin. He allows consequences of sin. Third, he will judge sin. Verse eight. She did not know. This is chapter two that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, the oil. I provided so much for her. I gave her everything. And then she used it who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time, my wine in its season. I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. This is consequence now flowing into judgment. I'm going to put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. The party's over he's over i will lay waste to her vines and her fig trees of which she said these are my wages which my lovers you know it was only a few decades after hosea preaches this message that the assyrian armies came kind of rocking over the north end of israel and and took all the 10 tribes of israel captive that's that's what the prophecy is talking about here i'm gonna i'm gonna allow this judge you think god could have stopped the assyrian armies if he wanted to of course he could have he didn't It was his judgment. He allows consequences of sin because he hates it. He's going to judge sin. I love this. Are you ready for some good news? Just say, Good news, please. You want some good news? Okay. We love the good news. Number four, yet he still loves enough to save. Verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness. This is part of the discipline. And speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Acor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth at the time when she came up out of the land of Egypt. That day declares the Lord, you will call me my husband and no longer will you call me my Baal, for I will... Remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the creeping things of the ground. I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the lord thank you jesus amen. amen thank you thank you lord you're going to do this that the covenant is going to be reestablished because of the powerful work that you're going to do you're going to call me back to this love enough to save me the fifth thing that he's communicating this is here is this but he, he requires a sacrifice for this to happen and this is where we're going He requires a sacrifice. Now look at at verse 14 of chapter 13 all the way towards the end. This is what Hosea writes. Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? That's the grave. Shall I redeem them from death? He's weighing it out. O oh, death, where are your plagues? O oh, grave, Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. This is a looking forward. Paul quotes this in his letter to the Corinthians, chapter 15. O oh, death, where is your sting? O oh, grave, where is your sting? It's removed. The ransom paid. Shall I ransom them from the power of the grave? We know. The price of the ransom. Hosea didn't have the full picture. He's just preaching into a situation that's going on right there in front of him. But Hosea not having the full picture. We have the full picture. We know how this all plays out through the giving of Jesus Christ. Bottom line is this. You and I have to pay our own price for sins. We're we're culpable before God. Some price has to be paid in order to bridge the gap between us and god you owe that you are holding the bill the only way for you to be ransomed is to is to pay that and the reality is that you're not good enough because of your sin to ever pay it yourself So the only price that can be paid is with your death, eternal separation from God. And only Jesus Christ, who is perfect and sinless and came and lived as a human being, giving his life as a sacrifice, that payment, if you will give the bill over to God, that payment in the blood of Jesus Christ will be sufficient for you. See, God's purpose for the Hosea message, then and now, is the same. It's to communicate the amazing offer of the gospel of Jesus Christ. His perfect life in place of your sinful life. So what do you need to hear? What do I need to hear? Maybe we are not identifying with the sacrifice that Hosea has to make because you're not in the place of being a believer and actually you would more readily identify with Gomer, the wife You're more the person given to immorality who's going after other gods and other things in this life to find satisfaction. You're in such rebellion against God, going your own way and doing your own thing deep into the world's ways. That what you need to do right now is respond as Israel needed to respond. Agreeing with God about the sin and turning to him in faith Receiving the love that he's offering. Hosea 10. I want you to see these verses. Hosea 10, verses 12 and 13. This is the message to the person who does not have a relationship with God, who's deep in their sin, who's identifying more with Hosea's wife than with Hosea and the sacrifice. You're the one caught in rebellion. Verse 12 says this of Hosea 10. Sow for yourselves, righteousness, plant those seeds of righteousness, then reap from that steadfast love. It's the love of God. Break up the fallow ground, the hard, uncultivated ground, the hardness of your heart. Break that up for it's time to seek the Lord that he may come and rain righteousness on you. Amen, right? Great deal. Then I just need to come to him in faith and have him cleanse me of my sins and bring a new day to my life. The parable in real life here was not so much about Hosea's sacrifice, which we're emphasizing in this message, looking at the man. But it's really about Gomer. It's really about Israel returning to the Lord, seeing her sin and repenting of it. Maybe that's what you need to hear. Maybe that's your response. Maybe the sacrifice you need to make is to take up your cross and follow Jesus Christ. The sacrifice you need to make is your own life. For those who have already made that decision, we need to hear that Hosea was already kind of emulating the sacrifice that Jesus would have him make. I mean, He considered the message and the call of God on his life of such importance that he willingly sacrificed to proclaim it. And believer, I would tell you this. If the gospel isn't costing you something. Then you're not doing the gospel right. If the gospel isn't costing you something. Then you're simply not doing it right. Sacrifice is such a critical part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. It's such a basic. And Hosea helps us see some of that in In his strong plea here but also paul and i love this verse romans 12 1 and 2 really just chapter 1 or verse 1 romans 12 1 the esv says i appeal to you new american standard says i urge you which is got a little more to the point i urge you therefore brothers by the mercies of god with all that i have inside of me i urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. I mean, the very nature of the Christian life is sacrifice that I would lose my life in order to gain it. This is this is what Paul called an act of worship. When we talk about our lives being 24-7 as worshipers, that this, it's not just that we come together Sundays to worship, but we worship throughout the week. This is just corporate worship where we get to come and do it together. But is your life given as a sacrifice in that sense that my whole life is given up for him? I mean, that was the problem in Israel. It was half-hearted faith and religion. Chapter six, verse six says, I desired steadfast uh, love and not sacrifice, which sounds kind of odd. Given this message, I desired steadfast love and not sacrifice. What he's talking about there, though, is the empty religious ritual of actually bringing sacrifices to the temple. You're 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 bringing your goat. You're slaying your goat. You're laying your goat on the altar. You're doing the religious thing. You're going to the feasts and festivals. You're praying the right prayers by memory. But it's all empty religion. It doesn't mean anything. And God says, I desired steadfast love. What I want is a relationship. What I want from you is is intimacy. What I want from you is, is from your heart, not empty ritual. They had head knowledge of God, but nothing experiential or transformational. It wasn't changing them. And God wants all of you, nothing held back, complete surrender, sacrifice. I mean, your entire body on the altar. That's the picture of sacrifice. There's an altar built. You're, not just, you're not just putting part of yourself on the altar. It doesn't even make sense. I mean, this is you, your whole body on the altar as an offering to the Lord. That was Hosea. That's why he's so heroic to me. He gave up things many of us would struggle to give up. He gave his he, he gave up his right to choose his own wife. God said, "I want you to marry this woman over here and by the way, you're going to marry her and she will be unfaithful to you." There's no one, no one in the room, I can safely say, would go into marriage knowing that their spouse was going to be unfaithful to them. That's just dumb. True? would just be dumb. I'm not saying that any of us would be called to that. This is specific to Hosea's situation. I'm making a case for the fact that he had to sacrifice in the way that God called him to sacrifice. It's kind of a unique situation. Had to give up his right to marry, choose the woman he loved. He had to give up his reputation, his dignity, his standing in the community not an easy thing to have your spouse leave your home after your first child and go after someone else and live with them and have two other children. There's shame attached to that in the community. And people are like, you're a preacher? You're telling me what to do? Dude, go home and take care of your family. True? Gave up his reputation because the Lord asked him to. Chapter 9, verse 7 simply says this the prophet is a fool that's, that's like how people perceived Hosea he's, he's, what, what an idiot listen to that guy gave up the potential for a normal marriage situation that's what we all go into marriage hoping for whatever the heck normal is there's that nervous laughter again Lest the people in your family around you what do you mean by that I don't know. You can talk about it at lunch. Are we normal? Gave up a potential for a great family situation, for peace, joy, love, for security in his marriage. He gave it all up. Instead, he faced the heartache of betrayal. Gave up financially, had invested so much. He gave up time for the relationship. Chapter 2, verse 8, you see how the Lord just provided, provided, provided for Israel. They, they just took it all and then used it for their own pursuits. He had to give her up to sin. One of the hardest thing and most sacrificial things that you would have to do in a marriage or in a home situation with your children is, is the tough love scenario. You heard of this before where someone's caught in sin, they're caught in addiction. You can't protect them. You shouldn't enable them. You got to give them over to it. You got to walk away from it. You got to change the locks on the door. You got to do something. You got to call an intervention. You got to you got to call it out. There's there's a cost to that. We all understand that. A potential severed relationship could last years or decades. Hosea sacrificed that. What do we need to hear? Are we as Christ followers willing to sacrifice for the mission that Jesus Christ has given us in this world? I mean, we're no less required to do what Hosea was doing. He is a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, I have the title of preacher, pastor, teaching pastor here at Harvest. But you're all, you're all preachers in your own way, in your own workplaces, in your own families, in your own neighborhoods. People are watching your life. They're seeing if the gospel is there anywhere, if they can see Jesus Christ at all. They're watching your life. They're listening to your words. At some point, you'll have the opportunity to share the gospel if you're being faithful with that. That's our mission as much as it was Hosea's. So you want that? We're no less required to go after those who are caught in sin to share the message of hope with them. We're no less to let our lives be a living illustration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every act of our lives, an act of worship. I saw this from John Piper this week. Nothing, nothing displays the worth of Jesus Christ more than our willingness to give away our lives in small and large ways for his sake. Nothing displays the worth of Jesus Christ more than than our willingness to give ourselves away. So will we? I mean, he made the point in this article I was reading, our lives, like I mean, our lives, that's our most prized possession. It's our most prized possession. Of all the other things that we own, all that stuff comes and goes. But our life, our actual life, that's the most valuable thing that we own. So naturally, we zealously work to protect this. It's our greatest passion to make this better. Giving away what's most prized is most difficult. Would you agree? Giving my life away is the most difficult thing that we'll do. Yet if we love Jesus Christ, we actually possess something. That's of more value than our life. Him. We possess Him. He possesses us. If we valued Jesus more fully, we'd sacrifice for Him more gladly. If we valued Jesus more fully, we'd sacrifice for him more gladly because nothing of this world would grip us like he does and so what's it going to be for you what's the sacrifice that he's calling you to make i can answer it for myself you and the lord you can answer it for you is it is is it as simple as as money is that, is that something that, like, I just need to have it? I want it. I earned it. It's mine. Maybe you came here today, and during the offering time, you just, like, maybe you didn't give anything. Maybe, maybe, maybe you just gave God a little tip. just a little something. Just a little, you know, thanks, Lord. Maybe you're not on the every week thing. Maybe you're like a user pay Christianity type of person you know i only i only give when i come like going to wonderland i mean i don't give to wonderland every week i just pay when i go but it's ain't wonderland and you're not just a customer it's a church of jesus christ if you're a follower of jesus christ i mean if you're a follower of jesus christ you're a follower of jesus christ whether you're at church or not i guess is my point maybe the sacrifice just needs to start there where your treasure is there your heart is also that's kind of an easy one though people don't like to hear it uh, how about this uh, your calendar when you look at your calendar is it is it mostly about you your calendar let me take a look at it this week is it mostly about you in your pursuits is there is there anything on there that's that's jesus now i get it's i get it we're on the doorstep of july and august i get it Maybe it's not fair to look at July and August. I love Sabbath. I love rest. Big proponent of it. Going to take some myself. But let's look, let's look normal time of year, September through June. How much of that calendar is given to Christ? In, in all of the ways that that's important, giving time to your family, time for yourself in your devotional time with the Lord, time in service, time in small group. How much of your calendar belongs to the Lord? Has, have you sacrificed that to him? How about relationships? Uh, both positively and negatively, God might be asking you to sacrifice, give up a relationship that's not healthy for you. Or God may be saying to you, I want you to invest, give up some of your time to invest in this relationship. So that can go either way. I can't answer that for you. Maybe it's your reputation. Maybe you're just so fearful in your workplace. You don't want people to know that you love Jesus because you don't want the pressure of maybe having to share that with someone. You're so concerned with what people think of you. Hosea didn't. Maybe it's an activity or a hobby, some leisure pursuit that takes too much of your time and too much of your energy and too much of your money. And as I said earlier, maybe it's your life. You got those cards on the way in. We're going to do something with them in just a moment. It just simply says on it, my sacrifice. And maybe the thing that you're going to put on that card, whatever it is, maybe you're just going to put my life. I'm not a follower of Jesus Christ and I want to become one and I want to give my life to him. Maybe that's what you're going to write there. You know, Hosea was so heroic to us because he sacrificed earthly happiness and temporal satisfaction for eternal joy and never-ending peace. And as I see it, that's just a good trade. In the end, you've sacrificed nothing of real value, and you've got something of infinite value. The Lord is good that way. Now we're going to move into a time of remembrance that the Lord himself prescribed for us. We're going to celebrate the Lord's table here today. Now, as we do that, we in this table with the bread and the cup, we have this perfect picture of sacrifice through Jesus Christ. In fact, Hebrews 9.26 says this, Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The bread and the cup are God-given symbols of Christ's love and sacrifice. And so as we go into this time of communion, it's really meant to be a time of reflection for you. A time for you to consider the sacrifice of Christ and, and to think about your own sacrifice for him. What might God be asking you to surrender? It might be a small thing. It might be something you've been wrestling with over the last little while. Maybe it's a big thing. Take out those cards right now. You have pens in your hands, hopefully. And I want you just to pray and think this this through. And I want you to be prepared to write something down. The servers are going to stay up here at the front this morning. When you're ready, when you've had a time of prayer, when you've written something on that card, I'm not saying you all have to do that. This is just a way that you can respond to the Lord. I'd encourage you to do it. You write something down. When you're prepared, when you're ready, I'm going to invite you to come up here to the front and lay your card on the Lord's table, on these tables, before you go and receive the cups. In each of the trays, you're going to find two cups together, stacked one on top of the other. And the bottom cup is the bread. The top cup has the juice in it. You just take that, make your sacrifice, take the communion, take it back to your seat. Spend time in prayer and worship of the Lord. And when you're ready, when you're ready, you take the bread and the cup on your own. And then I'll come back up in a few moments and close off our time together. And so team's just going to play over us. You listen, you worship, you pray. Then you come when you're ready. Father, bless now this time. Meet with us. Manifest your Holy Spirit in this room and in our lives. Press the word of God deeply into our hearts. And bless this time of communion as we celebrate and remember the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for us. It's in his strong name that we pray. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. We always love hearing about the work God's doing in our listeners. If God's been doing a work in you, send us an email at info at And remember, you are loved.